Curious City listener Mario Rueda grew up in Chicago's Edgewater neighborhood in the 1970s. And while Mario's family is Mexican, he says many of his neighbors were from somewhere else. Our neighbors were Cuban. All our family friends were Cuban. The first person I met in grade school who translated for me was Cuban. Mario remembers passing Santa Ita Church with its large Cuban congregation and going to La Plaza, a grocery store owned by a Cuban family. They were very supportive of our family. They gave my parents credit at the store. The owner actually wrote a letter for my parents for immigration. But when he goes back to Edgewater today, Mario says the Cuban community he grew up with seems to have banished. And overall, Chicago's Cuban community just doesn't feel as visible as it did back then. I was just wondering, like, how did Edgewater become so densely populated with Cubans? Um, how did that happen? And, and where did they go? I'm Curious City digital and engagement producer Maggie Sibbett. On today's episode, we'll look at the jobs, family connections, and government programs that once drew thousands of Cubans to Chicago neighborhoods, including Edgewater, and learn what happened to the communities they built. That's coming up after the break. Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Curious City today to get 10% off your first month. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Cubans have been coming to Chicago for a long time. But after the Cuban Revolution, when Fidel Castro came to power in 1959, there was the first big influx of Cubans to Chicago. In the 1960s, hundreds of thousands of Cubans, including my dad and his family, came to the United States. And one of the people who ended up in Chicago was Carlos Ayer. Our parents decided to send us to the United States, my brother and, and me. And we came on the Pedro Pan airlift. Carlos is a professor of religious studies at Yale University and the author of Waiting for Snow in Havana, a book my dad had on his bookshelf when I was in middle school. He came to the United States as part of Operation Pedro Pan, or Peter Pan, a program organized by a Catholic priest and the U.S. government that brought thousands of Cuban kids over the first three years after the revolution and placed them with foster families. And my foster family, uh, nice as they were, wonderful as they were, couldn't keep us. But then an uncle had arrived in the meantime, just before the doors closed, and uh, the refugee center in Miami sent him to Bloomington, Illinois. Federal government had a program for relocating professionals. He was an architect. But he couldn't take us in. 
when the missile crisis hit because he had just arrived in Bloomington and didn't have the resources. So they put us, quote unquote, temporarily in a foster home for juvenile delinquents. And they forgot about us. Then one day a social worker walked in to take care of one of the other kids and saw my brother and me. Said, what are you boys doing here? Why aren't you with your uncle? And we had no clue. We thought we were just there like permanently or something. There was a lot of confusion during this time. Some kids ended up staying with foster families for years in places like Montana or Iowa until they were able to be reunited with their parents. And some, like Carlos, were kind of forgotten about. But what happened in the meantime was that more and more Cubans were coming over and settling in Miami. And there was backlash, mainly from white, non-Latino Miami residents. Angles in Miami, as Cubans started coming in, they got scared. And they got even more scared when they figured out that we were not going back to Cuba. That's Maria de Los Angeles Torres, a professor of Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's the author of several books about Cubans in the United States. She describes how it became common to see pancartas, or placards, outside rental apartment buildings in Miami that read, No children, no pets, no Cubans. So when the parents of kids like Carlos did eventually make it to the United States, they often didn't get to choose where they ended up. Because they were facing so much public pressure, the federal government had a series of relocation programs to get Cubans out of Miami and into other cities. Chicago was one of the major areas of relocation. And so that's how Cubans post-revolution came to Chicago. There was a small community before the revolution, but not very extensive. According to Maria's book, In the Land of Mirrors, about 20,000 Cubans were resettled in Illinois during the 1960s as part of these relocation programs. As Carlos put it, Cubans were sent to La Tierra de Frío y Trabajo, the land of cold and work, for lots of reasons. But one of the biggest was jobs. Carlos remembers hearing about his mom's experience with a caseworker who said, You don't speak English. You don't have any professional skill. So we'll send you to Chicago. I said, oh, Chicago's the place for you. They got so many factories, you know, they'll hire you. And it's true. In the 1960s, manufacturing jobs in the Chicago area were everywhere. A Motorola factory at the time was a place where a lot of Cubans worked. This is what makes Chicago Cubans distinctive, I think, is the factory work. If, if there were a lot of Cubans working in one factory, they set up very Cuban things. These very Cuban things he's talking about were often side hustles. For example, someone who owned a big van might start a sort of DIY shuttle bus that would pick up workers in the city and bring them to one of the suburban manufacturing plants. They organized games of La Bolita, a popular betting game. And at the photocopy machine factory where his mom worked, Carlos said you could even get a homemade Cuban lunch. There were women who worked at the factory or the wives of men who worked at the factory who cooked Cuban meals and put them in these cans that stacked together and would sell them to 
people at the factory. So you've got all these interconnected relocation programs. Operation Pedro Pan, the one that placed unaccompanied kids like Carlos with foster families. Job placement programs for professionals like his uncle, the architect, who ended up in Bloomington. And general programs for people like his mom, who was sent to Chicago to work in factories. And these programs were all a big part of how the Cuban community in the Chicago area grew during the 1960s. Once they got to Chicago, Cubans settled in lots of different neighborhoods. I spoke to people whose families lived in Irving Park, Bronzeville, Hyde Park, Hermosa, and plenty of other places. But there were two particular neighborhoods that got mentioned over and over again. The first was Edgewater, the neighborhood where a question asker, Mario, grew up in the 1970s, surrounded by Cubans. And while it was a far cry from Cuba, Carlos said there were certain ways in which the lakefront neighborhood felt familiar. Or familiar enough. My mom kept saying, oh, this is just like Havana. It's just like Havana. Oh, we'll feel at home here. We'll feel at home here. Especially because we were only two blocks from the lake. He'd moved to Edgewater with his mom and brother, and remembers that the old Edgewater Beach Hotel, from a certain angle, even looked a bit like the Hotel Nacional in Havana. Grocery stores owned by Cuban families like La Unica, and churches with big Cuban congregations like Santa Ita, became hubs of Cuban social life, which helped draw more people. Plus, there was just good old-fashioned neighborhood magnetism. When one family moves in, their cousins or friends might decide to move there too. At Nicholas Sen High School, Carlos remembers his principal kept a giant world map on the wall, with pins marking cities and countries across the globe that students and their families had come from. In Cuba, you couldn't see it on the map because of all the, all the pins. These neighborhoods take in one group, right? And they all, like magnets, they attach to the place. It became a home away from home for a lot of Cuban-Americans. Maria de Los Angeles Torres told me about a Cuban-American guy who put together a brochure to try to attract Cubans from South Florida. It showed people scattered along the Chicago lakefront on a summer day, making it look almost like the Malecon, the famous waterfront walkway in Havana. Somehow, the brochure didn't include any pictures of the lake during winter. But despite the cold, the Edgewater neighborhood, with its Cuban cafeterias and gatherings of Cuban neighbors on Sunday afternoons, became a haven for many Cuban-Americans in the 60s and 70s. Beyond Edgewater, there was a second Chicago neighborhood that also had a Cuban enclave during this time, Logan Square. By comparison, it was grittier and a little rough around the edges. But it was home to perhaps the most important place in Chicago for Cuban-Americans in the 1970s and 80s. It was the hottest nightclub in the neighborhood, and the spot everyone brought up when I was reporting for this story. I'll tell you more about it after the break, and we'll also get into the bigger picture of Cubans in Chicago at the time, and what made Chicago's Cuban community unique.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. One thing you need to know about Cuban Americans in the late 1960s and 70s is they were very politically polarized. This was true across the U.S., but it was especially true in Chicago. For example, members of a far-right Cuban group bombed a Mexican tourist office in downtown Chicago twice because they thought Mexico was too sympathetic to Cuba's revolutionary government. And on the other side... Are you familiar with the Brigada Antonio Maceo? No. Oh, okay, let me back you up. That's Cuban-American author Achio Bejas, who worked as a journalist in Chicago for more than two decades. The Antonio Maceo Brigade was basically a group of leftist Cuban-Americans who wanted to go to Cuba and build relationships with the Cuban government in the 1970s. Maria de Los Angeles Torres, who was part of the group, says many of them had been active in the Chicano movement, the Puerto Rican independence movement, and other social and political movements here in Chicago before deciding to turn their focus on Cuba. We all found ourselves really kind of being sort of odd people, okay? Bichorraros, okay? Within these movements because we weren't of any of these communities, but we were in solidarity with them. But some of their members, whose politics around Cuba eventually changed, went on to become important figures in Chicago politics. Maria, for example, became one of the first executive directors of Mayor Harold Washington's Advisory Council on Latino Affairs in the 1980s. Another Cuban-American, Natalia Delgado, was nominated by Washington to become the first Latino member of the CTA board. Here's Achiobejas. So these super progressive Cubans became a part of government and became very, very influential. And even in Miami, the Cuban left had not ever achieved something like that. That happened in Chicago in a very unusual way because of the Washington campaign. And there was one place in the Logan Square neighborhood that Cuban Americans from both sides of the political spectrum spent a lot of time during this period. This place that was a kind of a demilitarized zone, what I'm saying is Nena Torres could be having dinner next to a guy who was a Bay of Pigs veteran. The place Achi's talking about is Tanya's. It used to be on Milwaukee Avenue, right across from the Logan Theater. Owner Elias Sanchez initially worked at a factory making staplers and other office supplies after he came to Chicago from Cuba. But he had a knack for business, so he opened Tanya's with his wife, Marta, in the mid-1970s. I created in Chicago the best Cuban restaurant and the best nightclub on the story of Chicago. I created Tanya's. The grocery, La Bodega, you know, it's the butcher shop, you could smell the blood, you know. I mean, it was an out-and-out bodega, and it was crowded. But once you open the door to the back, It was a completely different universe. 
Marta was the mastermind behind the menu. Her black bean soup was apparently Mayor Harold Washington's favorite. According to Marta, the mayor would always order extra to take with him after his meal. And they were known for their live music. Elias would dig up these guys who had played in La Orquesta Sigonet in 1943. You know, they were all like on their, their last breath, you know. <laughs> and they would come and they would play the weekend. And the music was incredible. It wasn't just Chicago's Cubans coming to Tanya's. It was an extremely popular spot for the city's Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Ecuadorians, and non-Latino Americans. During this period, travel to Cuba from the U.S. was particularly hard, basically impossible. Elias thinks that might have played a role in what drew so many people to Tanya's. A sense of curiosity or nostalgia. And the people started to come in like remember Cuba on the 1950s and coming to Tanya's to enjoy and pass a night in Havana. Really. Huge celebrities like Celia Cruz and Gloria Estefan stopped in to eat and listen to live music at Tanya's when they were in Chicago. One of the most beloved figures at Tanya's was Orestes, the mater d' and waiter. He was an amazing dancer. Crowds would form around him and whoever he was dancing with, often Marta, to admire his salsa and merengue moves. People love it. See the Cuban music and dancing. This guy, Orestes, is an incredible guy. And he is like an icon over there in Tanya's. People who went there told me that on any given night, Tanya's was wall-to-wall packed, with people dancing until 5 in the morning. And it was unusual because it was such a welcoming space, largely thanks to Elias. He had a policy of absolute open doors. It was one of these places where everybody could go regardless of their political opinions. So, of course, it drew a lot of the younger progressive Cubans and a lot of Cuban queers. And so this became a very interesting place. So while all kinds of people went there, not just Cubans, Tanya's was in some ways kind of this microcosm of Chicago's Cuban-American community at the time. Chicago's community was a lot smaller than Miami's, meaning people ended up intermingling, even if they didn't seem to have much in common beyond their shared Cubanidad. At the same time, the Cuban community in the city was big enough that it was really diverse in a lot of ways. And at the center of it all was Tanya's, where, because of this open-door policy Achi talked about, it became this really unique place where lots of different kinds of people felt at home. Tanya's was a super lively place up until it closed. Their final night was a New Year's Eve party on December 31st, 1998, that was attended by more than 500 people. By the 1980s and especially the 90s, Chicago had lost a lot of its manufacturing jobs. And when the jobs left, so did some of the people who had come to the city for them decades earlier. Here's Carlos Ayer. I remember that somebody came up with this poem 
kind of a refrain. See if I can remember it. Adios, Chicago querido. Tierra de frío y trabajo. Aquí dejo mi abrigo y me voy para el carajo. Goodbye, Chicago. Land of cold and work. I leave you my coat and I go to hell. A lot of the people I spoke to for the story remember, in the 1980s and 90s, watching more and more of their Cuban friends and family leave Chicago. Many of them went to Miami, where the Cuban food and culture, and warmer weather, has huge appeal for Cuban Americans. There's this joke, because Miami feels so culturally Caribbean that the best thing about it is how close it is to the United States. But while it's difficult to find exact numbers for this period, the numbers that are available suggest that the Cuban population in the Chicago metro area actually hasn't changed all that much. While some people did leave, others moved in. But what has changed from the 1970s is how concentrated Cubans are in particular Chicago neighborhoods, like Edgewater and Logan Square. Achi says that's just part of the history of Chicago's Cuban community. So there were physical places. They're just, they were ephemeral. They didn't last very long. Today, Cuban Americans still find community in Chicago through Cuban restaurants, Latino theater organizations, and each other. You might even catch a group of recently arrived Cubans playing a weekly game of dominoes. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-McGeegod is Curious City's reporter. I'm the show's digital and engagement producer. Susie Ahn edits the show. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. I'm Maggie Civit. Thanks for listening. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.